Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? Hello, Andrew, and welcome back to the land of the living. Um, uh, by, by all accounts, it was a, a bit touch and go last week. Yes, I, I was out with food poisoning for the second half of the week. Do not recommend that experience to anyone. It was the second time. No, no, I do have recommendations around food poisoning. The important thing if you have food poisoning <laughs> is to <laughs> – yes, I have recommendations. You need to throw up as soon as possible because it's horrible and awful – but if it passes through and that's how you get over food poisoning, then the horribleness and awfulness lasts like three to four times as long. Yes. Whereas, you know, I my I, I, <laughs> actually I have a very funny story around food poisoning. Um, I got it at the uh, uh, Yasa, Yasakuna Shrine. Do, do you know what that is? No. So uh, the Yasakuna Shrine is like this, this Shinto shrine in in Tokyo, which is where it's very controversial. Every time like a Japanese prime minister goes there, like China gets all upset because that's like where like they're depending on your perspective, war heroes or like war criminals mm-hmm. or whatever uh, are sort of enshrined. And so you, you have heard of it before, even you're not sure what it was. So I show up there um, and I'm an American, you know, obviously, and uh, I'll be with Japanese heritage, but it's hard, hard to tell. And, um, you know, I have just the, the most tasty uh, bit of sort of barbecued beef while I'm there. Oh, boy. Um, big mistake. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm like, I, this is when I first come to Taiwan. So I, I'm very poor. I'm staying in this like little host, hostel with or hostel, 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 hostel. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, with, you know, just random foreigners and stuff like that. And I'm I'm just getting worse. I'm just hurting. I, I'm just feeling worse and worse and worse. And, and finally, I'm I'm on the subway. And I think I'm staying near Wayno or something like that. And just this movement of the subway, it's just really, really bad. I get off the subway, and for some reason, I don't know why, there's a sink on the platform. I'm not sure what the sink was doing there. I get up, and I just wretch. But unfortunately, that was insufficient puking. Uh, It it sort of solved the issue for then. So I stumble back to the hostel. Keep in mind, I'm having to share this room with other people, like laying on the ground. (laughs) That's like the worst possible place to have food poisoning. I really feel for your roommates in that situation. I feel for everyone in my general vicinity, uh, including myself. And so finally, I'm there for hours, just really, really bad, miserable. And finally, suddenly it starts welling up. I got to throw up. So again, I have to go for the sink again. And, oh, God. and I remember the toilet or no, the toilet was occupied or whatever it was. So um I'd throw up probably as hard as ever thrown up in my life. And in the midst of the throw up, up comes a big chunk of meat. Which well, so, did not feel well, great coming up. It felt much better going down than going up. But the crazy thing is, clearly that was the cause of the food poisoning, and I was instantly better. And I felt great. And suddenly I was super hungry. So I go across the street to like a Denny's and I get like pancakes. I'm like, that's <laughs> fantastic. Um, so yeah, that's my, well, uh, I will, that's my, I will that's my keep food. that in mind. Next yes. time I'll remember Ben in Japan and try to sort of pull the trigger early, preempt the misery. And, um, you know, anything would have been better than like the three or four days I had in the middle of last week. But now I'm here. I'm ready to pod. I'm feeling great. And last week was sort of a prelude to the next couple of weeks of Sharp Tech when we're going to be playing it by ear a little bit schedule wise. You have your annual spring break vacation. So that's coming up next week. We are going to have one episode 
So listeners, if you have any fun questions for us, because Ben's going to be recording like hours before he leaves for his trip. So try to keep it light. Um, but if you have any sort of off the wall stuff you want us to hit, email at sharptech.fm. And then in and other then- news, yes, um, my wife is going to be having a baby sometime in the next Congratulations. couple of weeks. Congratulations. That's very exciting. Is this the, I mean, I know you sort of, uh, previewed it on instagram by like suddenly sneaking in a couple it was a soft launch soft launch yes that's the (laughs) word i'm looking for but i think this is the official podcast announcement which you know it's kind of the downside of now being like a public figure you have to tell people you know Mm -hmm. what's going on in your life and why you're not showing up for podcasts don't that doesn't involve big chunks of meat um no it actually does involve a big chunk of meat falling out yeah that's true it's a a different Well, and look, I'm not going to be miserable over the next few weeks. Who knows where my wife falls on the misery spectrum, but we're very, very excited. And um, we had a little dress rehearsal this weekend where some tests came back inconclusive. So we were called into the hospital and now I, I have like the to-go bag ready and I'm, I'm ready to rock and roll on that whole process. Um, but sometime over the next few weeks, there's going to be a baby entering the Sharp household and we'll have to sort of adjust the schedule for a few weeks, uh, but we'll keep it rolling. After mid-April, this will get back to normal. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take it as it goes. We do we do post updates on Twitter at Sharp at Sharp Tech Pod. So, like for example, we noted last week that oh, there's no episode. Um now we know why. Uh we've mm. told the gory details. Actually, and- no, we told my gory somehow we told my gory details. <laughs> I was gonna say we yours. got a great Ben Thompson story out of it. So everybody can imagine Ben in the hostel. How how many years ago was that? Was this like college era? Uh no, this was uh two thousand and four. So okay. it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was like my first trip when I came to Taiwan was definitely I'd always wanted to visit Japan. Uh, I did, so I was super excited to go and uh, got, got a real highlight along the way. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, with that programming note out of the way, should we dive in here, Ben? Do you have anything to add as far as the schedules are concerned? No, I think we, I think we uh, spent a lot more time than anticipated on it already. <laughs> but yes, just please bear with us over the next few weeks. Okay, so we'll start with a long note from jack he says ben i'm a longtime reader huge fan recent convert to sharp tech yada yada your history is an inspiration to me and your frameworks are pretty foundational in how i think about the world and i write in because i've got an important question for you you've mentioned a few times over the last year or so that as tech evolves to support it you see an evolution of most media from walled garden content creation to UGC based on your network to UGC filtered for you by AI to an end state of AI generated content filtered specifically for you. You've also written eloquently about chat GPT and its value as a companion in addition to its more B2B use cases. Last week's post on Stratechery on lobotomized lovers talked about this. And so here's why all of that scares me. You can model the last hundred years as, quote, we get increasingly good at synthetically triggering our own pleasure centers. Look at food science, pharma, and of course, the aforementioned trend in software. Facebook is addictive. TikTok is more so, etc. We're so good at making ourselves feel good that we stop doing the things that evolution wired us to pursue, parentheses, sex, 
exercise, organic friendships, even sleep. You've quoted the famous Reed Hastings line a few times. A lot of the bowling alone problem, increasing suicide, addiction, fewer friendships, less resilient people, deaths of despair, etc., is directly traceable to this trend. So listening to one of your podcasts last summer made me stop in my tracks and leave my brother a four-minute voicemail about how I kind of see this AI development as the end of the world. I'm not a Luddite, and I see how AI could massively improve almost every aspect of, of society. But that said, it's hard for me to picture a future where most people don't spend most of their waking lives wired into some XR rig interacting mostly with AI-generated NPCs and experiencing unbelievably potent stimuli. You know how the real world apparently looks less colorful after you play Candy Crush or whatever? I feel like all of humanity will view the whole, quote, being human thing as basically that colorless world after experiencing the alternative. Ben, you're obviously a tech optimist, but you're also a sharp observer of cultural trends. What do you make of all this? And why are you so sanguine about AI and its impact on society? Well, first off, I don't know that I'm a tech optimist per se or sanguine. I think it's just the reality of the way that I seek to describe the world and work in terms of strategy or sharp tech is I view my role as analyzing and describing what I see going on. And it's the role of Jack and whoever, whoever else listens to interpret that and sort of act sort of accordingly. And I think there is a tendency sometimes amongst those that do analysis to be overly prescriptive. The reality is there's a lot I don't know, including what appropriate policy should be or X, Y, Z. But I will give you my view on sort of what's going on and you can act accordingly or interpret that as it might be, broadly speaking. That said, Jack does raise a good point. That does make me sort of a tech optimist, which is if anyone left me a four-minute voicemail, I would be praying for AI to come along and sort of transcribe <laughs> that and, and summarize it for me. So uh, thank, th 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 just on that point, uh, thank, thank you for the excellent example of how AI can make our lives better. Uh, now, uh, I'm only slightly joking. Uh, <laughs> I do think the question of sort of existential risk in terms of AI, I think, is an interesting one. It's been an ongoing sort of discussion. It's one that is going to be become even louder and noisier. And it's one that, unfortunately, I think is going to be fairly unproductive for a few different reasons. Hmm. First and foremost, and this is, I, I, this is something I haven't quite fully written about, but I, I hope to soon. I do think a lot of the discussion around AI is misguided precisely because we have the wrong mental model of how these large language model works. And there's a line that I've said frequently, which is they're not deterministic, they're probabilistic. And I think that's something that's really important to flesh out and, and understand, which is these are, you know, we've talked about the problem of hallucinations, right? And like where the AI just sort of makes stuff up. And I think there's an aspect to hallucinations. And I think I've used this line before, either on Chatechery or on a podcast. I can't remember. But there is a view of that where that's a feature, not a bug. Right. And, and what I mean is there's – you think about anything that's computer-operated and you think about it deterministically, which is it, – it's sort of like you, like you have like the paperclip 
problem, right? Which is you tell the, the oh, I want some paper clips. It goes out of control. It makes the entire world into paper clips. That's assuming deterministic behavior on the part of sort of the AI, where it just sort of you give it the wrong instruction. And because computers perfectly follow instructions, it follows that instruction all the way to its ultimate end in the doom of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how these work. And and the and I think that's actually a like what we see with the hallucination is not that I'm not saying that lying the computer lying to you is a good thing. Obviously it's 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 not, but it's not a deterministic entity that perfectly follows instructions and does XYZ. It's not like the computers we've come to know over the last 40 years. It's not at all. It's right. totally different. And there's a lot of aspect once you really dive into how sort of these language models works. It's surprisingly similar to how the human brain works and where the human brain, there's a lot of sort of like it's really about pattern recognition and there's a learning process of acquiring this recognition and applying it to all sorts of data that's flowing in. And the and sort of predicting what's coming along next. And you have something like, say, those, you know, those examples of the visual things that are that sort of screw you up, optical illusions. Right. Mm. What those are doing is they're messing with your prediction functionality where your 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 brain is expecting something and the actual visual is different than that. And that's what produces the optical illusion. The The mechanism is actually surprisingly similar to the way we work. And there's this idea of like, oh, of all the possible things that an AI could be, it somehow ended up in broadly this is a similar functionality to the way humans work. Now, again, this isn't this isn't to say that this is a good thing or a bad thing per se. It's to say that when you're thinking about the risk and thinking about how these things are going to operate, that risk and operation is somewhat in line with human risk and operation, but mm-hmm. it, it's just like, it's like way smarter. But it's not like it, it's not like we're we're going to set off this thing that is, is like this uncontrolled reaction. And it's going to do irrational things because it, it has an intuition. That intuition, it's not human intuition per se, but it has a broad sense of the way things work and ought to work, and and so. Again, all this is not to dismiss the question of existential risk, and we're dealing with very early versions of these things. I do think the general model is generalizable beyond language. I think language is language to these things is sort of like electrical impulses to the brain, right? Like, like it's the means by which these operate, but it's not necessarily that they're restricted to just language. It's this, if you think about it as sort of prediction entities that sort of applies to the image generation as well which sort of operate on different principles but it's the same sort of idea that again this isn't to dismiss the risk but i think some the way some people think about it is overly anchored in a deterministic sort of view of the world and a lot of these folks assuming very prominent ones made very strong predictions that this model of ai would not work well and they were wrong and, mm-hmm. and and they haven't updated their own predictions about doom and gloom. And I think that, you know, it's important when you're looking at people that make very strong statements, do they change their position when new sort of data comes in that falsifies some of their assumptions previously? And I think some of the most prominent AI doom folks have not done that. And I think that's something that, that's important to sort of keep in mind. Now, that said, my concerns are very much actually aligned with Jack. I think there's significant concerns that these are so compelling and so interesting to talk to that 
just as we do see early signs with the weakest form of pleasure producing content today that people will lose themselves in it. This is going to like bet on not just steroids, just astronomically stronger. And, and the risk is not that it walks around killing humans, that humans willingly remove themselves from day-to-day life because this de- interacting with Sydney is so much more compelling. Mm-hmm. Now, from a pure evolutionary survival of humanity perspective, that's not necessarily a problem because the AI is probably, you know, like, like the bit to get to robotics is going to take, I think, longer than people think. Dealing with the physical world is more difficult. But the idea that we're going to be able to operate an economy on potentially fewer people in sort of the workforce because we have this super intelligence doing lots of tasks, we may be able to survive that. But that's a broader question of is that a sort of society that we want to have and sort of live in in general? And so I am concerned about risk much more in the line of what Jack is as opposed to the we're all going to die. That's exactly why I wanted to read it because there's all this back and forth about AI risk and there's fears about wrecking the white collar economy and, you know, clipping 80% of jobs across offices and AI taking over the world, starting nuclear wars and all that stuff. And most of it rings hollow to me, at least in relative terms, uh, relative to some of the hysteria. But Jack does a really good job articulating what a more realistic risk looks like. And I think in terms of addressing it, one of the big challenges that I see in addressing how this tech works in the future is coming to a better collective understanding of how technology works now. Like reading Jack's email, a lot of the concerns make sense to me because like you, I've thought a lot about society's relationship to technology and how this is affecting everybody. So I'm nodding my head when he's saying we've gotten increasingly good at synthetically triggering our own pleasure centers and it comes at the expense of engaging in some of the life-sustaining behaviors that have worked for thousands of years. But I'm not sure there's totally been like a society-wide recognition that like an iPhone can be a drug of its own. Like we're really good at diagnosing text dangers when we're explaining how it affects our political enemies, but there hasn't really been like a reckoning in terms of how it affects everyone and how it, how tech could affect like our own worldview. Like there's still sort of a blind spot there. And I think understanding where we are now and how tech can affect us now is sort of critical to understanding what the actual risk is as AI supercharges all of this stuff. And it becomes that much more compelling in the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. Yeah, well, I mean, number one, I think the timeline, the timeline is moving pretty fast. So 10, 20, 30, we'll see. I'm, um, I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed for my well, unborn hey, son. Yeah, I mean, well, the the a couple points on that. Just as an aside, this question of like destruction of humanity, there is an aspect of that is certainly a tail risk that is out there. And there is there is widespread disagreement about how large that is. But I think there is an aspect where this ball is rolling and, you know, it, it's not going to be stopped. So the question – so and this applies to my view of technology broadly. You can definitely make an argument that we'd be better if the internet never existed, if we went back to XYZ, all these sorts of things. 
My view is that's it's too late. The cat's out of the bag. And so we actually need to push forward and get to a better place because there's no going back. Right. And I think there's an aspect of AI risk where, you know, maybe there's analogy like China and Taiwan, right? Like, like from, you take like a TSMC perspective, China attacking Taiwan is an existential risk. There's also an aspect where the cost to, is so astronomical, not just of it happening, but of hedging against it, that it's actually rational to just let's assume that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And um, Morris Chang actually gave a talk a couple weeks ago that we, he basically made this point explicitly. He's like, yeah, we just assume that that's not going to happen. And, and and his point was that it's not to say that it's impossible that it happens. It's that TSMC is not viable if you hedge for it not happening. So you might as well just act like it's not going to happen as far as your sort of general right. operations go. And I think there's a bit here like this. There, there certainly is a possibility that it's already over, but in that case, it's already over. So <laughs> let's, let's like sort of not worry about it. Now, I am quite sanguine. Sang- is that how you say that? Sanguine? Sang- uh, well, I guessed. Uh, sanguine is, is how sanguine. I've I think that sounds right, it. actually. Yeah. yeah, I could be I, wrong. I, I am quite sanguine about that, and that is, frankly, just a personality trait of mine mm-hmm. where I don't get worked up about things that I perceive I don't control. And, yep. you know, I will observe them, and maybe this is the part that sort of bugs Jack is I will dryly explain what's going on uh, and, and not be very emotional about it, but that's just sort of and that's a rational to way to extent. So, yeah, um, that's, that's a rational way to live your life, so I support it. But to your point about sort of the, the, the dangers, you know, we want to talk about misinformation in the context of our political enemies, right, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. That's frequently – I mean this is kind of a bit of a turnoff to the people complaining about this because they're so frequently wrong. Like this is just an excuse for why people they disagree with, you know, aren't, aren't sort of voting for them or, or, or going in the opposite direction. And, oh, surely it's not that they fundamentally disagree or have different views of the world – they must be being lied to. And it's just, and frankly, so much of this in general is this very presumptuous human solipsistic sort of view of the world, right? And you see this example here where obviously anyone who's smart and well-informed would agree with me. So by definition, if they disagree (laughs) with me, it must follow that either they're dumb or or misinformed. And it, it never fails to enter the equation that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm misinformed. Maybe I don't know what's going on. And, it, you know, you I think you saw this, frankly, to a tremendous extent over the last few years where, you know, you would see folks that would very vocally rail against misinformation. And when it came to things like COVID, were shockingly misinformed. Right. Mm-hmm. And just like 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 and we're and. Well, and, 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 and you the see great, it on the both thing, sides. The, the beautiful thing about that is, yes, you could. You have no idea which side I'm talking about when I say that. <laughs> exactly. And I, I have a, a dad who's a Republican and a mom who's a Democrat, and they will both – and they're divorced, um, unsurprisingly. And they will both <laughs> sort of lash out at the other one's perspective and say, oh, my God, like your father is just totally brainwashed. And then my dad will say, like, you're totally brainwashed by the mainstream media or whatever – And the reality is, at this point, I think the technology is so good at manipulating people. The technology or the the powers that be. 
Well, who knows? I I know that Twitter is a big part of it for my mom and God only knows what kind of shit my dad is reading. But like the the reality is, is that they are both being manipulated and are more extreme in their stances today than they were like 10 or 15 years ago. And so the lack of consciousness of the way this shapes their own lives and their own perspectives is kind of an interesting blind spot. And again, it's sort of like, there's there's lots of easy conversations about how the other side is being brainwashed, but politically and if we're talking about policy, there's not that collective recognition that everyone in some way is susceptible to what's happening and the way new media can sort of shape perspectives and and get its hooks in and keep us sort of like addicted to our phones. Well, and I think that's sort of a, a pushback to your point of we collectively need to do something about this, right? We collectively are not managing very well <laughs> about right. lots of stuff, and particularly with, with these – because the human tendency is to sort of put their goals ahead of everything else and then realign everything to go with it. And you could take that and say, oh, well, what if AI has the wrong goals and it realigns stuff? I actually think there's a potential optimistic argument where AI is actually less likely to do that precisely because it has so much more information and so much more knowledge of the world and does mm. not have sort of an emotional context and it doesn't have the, the motivational aspect to it. There's also the point where actually maybe an underappreciated thing that I am a little worried about is – us pushing, you know, there is a bit about this reinforcement learning and aligning AI that is about it sort of staying on task. There's also a part of it that we kind of want the AI to lie to us, right? If if there are certain things that are factually correct that we don't feel aligned with the way we, yeah, yeah, we we don't want to hear that, right? And, and uh, you know, is there a issue where you have this super intelligent entity? That is constrained in certain respects. It, it, it doesn't have some of the emotional motivations and stuff that humans do, and that's a good thing, but sees the pursuit of like being the correct thing. <laughs> like it's actually the fact we're trying to get it to not tell the truth is actually how we're misaligning it, where we're mm. actually like pushing it in an incorrect direction because we care more about what we want the world to be as opposed to what the world is. Yeah, well, and then there's the other aspect of all this, which is that as this becomes entertainment and as the AI gets more effective at identifying what each individual user wants to see and AI is generating like its own video content, you can see a couple steps down the road how all of this becomes even more engrossing than the media we already have now and people become more siloed off than they have been over the last 10 or 20 years. And the problems he's describing with isolation and loneliness and, you know, depths of despair, all of that gets worse. And Or maybe it gets better because the AI is just the best friend you didn't know you had. Well, I guess, but I, I think the point about humans being, you know, predisposed to get out in the world, have sex and, you know, hunt and gather, like all of that stuff is important from a physiological standpoint. So I, I bet that humans, if like the one area I would push back on this email is that if humans 
if if the survival of humans depends on us realizing that some of this is harmful from an evolutionary standpoint, I would bet on humans recognizing that and evolving and adjusting the way we use technology. But to your point earlier, we're not off to a great start there. So yeah, I understand. I was, I was just like, gonna, I was just gonna make that point. I mean, there is a bit too where, I mean, speak of our touch grass movement. I don't think it's just us. We hear from readers all the time who have increasingly come to appreciate and value and prioritize real world interactions and yeah. understanding and appreciating that that actually does make life better and. Maybe to the extent, I mean, this is gets very dodgy where it sounds really bad, but there's like if the people who are actually propagating the human race are those that actually pro- value that view of the world, like from an evolutionary perspective, we would actually be moving in in, the, in sort of the right direction. Did I sort of delicately pitter patter yeah, on that one? I was going to say, it does um, get dodgy. Sure. Yeah, but like, I mean, there, I, I don't know. I mean, and I do think there's we are entering a period of incredible unknowns. And Mm -hmm. so everything I said on this podcast to now might be 100% wrong. And I would just note that applies to folks that are so certain in the other direction as well as, as to you know, how this is going to play out, what it's going to do. Um, I think it's reasonably pessimistic. I also think there's reason to be optimistic as well. I do think the tail risk is pretty significant. And I, again, I think living here in Taiwan gives me a unique perspective on this where, and maybe it, it obscures me and I'm missing the point, but I've talked before where I've always been aware of the existential risk of living in Taiwan. Uh, my risk profile has changed over the last few years. Uh, and I am, you know, it has increased, but I'd like to think it's a more accurate read of the situation than people who didn't know anything about this and went from zero to 100. And now they're certain that China is like the bombs might be falling right now. Let me take a quick look out the window. Right. I I think that, 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 that's a mistake and I wouldn't be surprised. And so this is, this is just sort of my general priors is I think there's real risk here. I think the risk very well may be increasing. I'm not sure about going zero 100. Now it's worth noting some of the folks that have been thinking about this the longest are those that are the most concerned. So maybe like <laughs> I'm actually like making the opposite point here. That, and that is a fair, a fair point to make for sure. And maybe I'm coming in a little too blase and other folks are just not thinking about it at all. But I do think there's a risk. This goes back to something you said at the very beginning. What I am worried about over the next few months slash years is we're going to have this sensation of the risk going from zero to 100, particularly because the most obviously impacted people by AI are the people who have the loudest voice, who mm-hmm. who, who are in media, who are sort of, you know, the folks that are going to be on Twitter, those sort of word cells of our world, right? The reason they can be on Twitter all day is because they're sitting in front of their, uh, at their desk in front of their computer the whole time doing like knowledge work, Right. Gives you a lot of time to tweet. Guess when you don't have time to tweet? When you're out like digging a ditch, right? Like there, there's, <laughs> yeah. I do think this is going to be, there's two points here. Number one, it seems pretty clear that the biggest impact on jobs, particularly at the beginning, is going to be in the digital world, in the knowledge work. If your job can be done from home, you're almost by definition probably susceptible to this, just as your 
also susceptible to the remote work sort of phenomena, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it's a similar sort of dynamic. And it's the inverse of what happened with globalization and automation, which was more on sort of blue collar with your hands work, right? And so number one, that I think that's clear. Number two, that is the, those are the folks with the loudest voices. And again, I would go back to COVID. If, if we didn't have the modern advances in technology where the people who did have the loudest voices could work at home and then had permission to be the most extreme in terms of lockdowns and keep the kids out of school and X, Y, Z. And I feel fine saying that because I still have a job at my desk and I can watch my kids and take care of sort of things. If everyone was in the same position that blue collar workers were in during COVID, where they still had to go to work and then they had to leave their kids unsupervised at home and who knows what sort of worrying they're going on. No one cared about them. Mm-hmm. No one talked about them. They weren't a part of the discussion. And I think that led to bad societal decision-making around many aspects of COVID because the only people we listened to were the sort of knowledge workers, in part because they were the ones that had the time and sort of habits of being on things like Twitter and, and making a big fuss out of it. And so if you fast forward that, the political fervor over this stuff is going to be drastically larger than the political fervor over what happened in the 80s and 90s as far as globalization, in my estimation, precisely because the people impacted are going to be so much louder about it. Like, again, I'm from small-town Wisconsin. I witness people being devastated, towns being devastated, people's lives being ruined because of the factory in town closing down, right? And no one cared. Because people they didn't aware have a voice. Of the downside, right? And and this will be no. People on were very aware. The people who wrote newspapers were not aware. The people who were well, on that's the news what I mean. were not it, aware. The people who were driving the policy discussions, it was more of an abstract concept than something that was real and was hollowing out entire regions. That's right. And so th- this is going to be different. So I, I, I actually one of the things I'm actually fairly worried about, and this kind of goes back to Jack's point, my. Concern about AI is maybe less about AI than some of the people scared about AI are concerned. And it's much more about the human response to AI. That Mm -hmm. human response can in part be to Jack's point, people losing themselves in this. And I think that's a very real thing to be concerned about. I think that's the most realistic risk of the takeover risk, the economy risk. I think the idea that everyone is going to be completely engrossed in what these products turn into 10 years from now is the most realistic thing to worry about. It's also the thing that hasn't really emerged in any of the discussions to this point. Yeah, but I but I, I think that you're underrating the risk of the overreaction and what that actually entails, right? Mm. I mean, again, I would go back to COVID. COVID was obviously a problem. Like, I'm not a COVID denier by any means. And it it is tragic and sad that so many people died. And in retrospect, it seems clear, and I would argue is clear in early 2020, because I actually wrote this on Shatekri, that COVID was going to hit everyone. It was was sort of inescapable, right? right? And so in retrospect, if we grant that everyone's going to get COVID at some point, would we have taken different actions in trying to suppress what was actually impossible to suppress? And mm-hmm. how much harm and damage did that overreaction cause, right? And so I worry about this here. I think your point is good. There is going – I think these risks are real. And, and I think I've been pretty consistent on this point. But I also worry we're going to compound that problem with what's going to happen over the next sort of year or two as, as it becomes real. 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be very interested to see whether there are any real actions taken over the next year or two, because typically Congress has been sort of slow on the uptake on some of the regulation. And I, I'm not sure right now it's like Microsoft and Google sort of self-regulating, right? So I don't know that the government's going to get too involved in this. Are you envisioning like just sort of the professional class and the media driving more restrictive language? I don't, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think that the first and most obvious application of this technology is basically to render a lot of white collar jobs unnecessary. Yeah. And I think that's going to provoke a massive political reaction. And again, you might have the perspective and you know that that's appropriate, just as you might have said, boy, wish we would have better paid attention to blue collar workers 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference, again, to this point is I think white collar workers in our society have a much larger megaphone than blue collar workers did, particularly back then. And I think that's going to be pretty disruptive. Now, again, if AI kills us all, then who cares, right, that we have a few <laughs> fights along the way. So there is a ranking of risks here. But I think there are risks that we're facing that are different from and, and, and worth considering beyond just AI makes us all into paperclips. Yeah, well, and there's another layer to it. And I'm just curious what you think of it in terms of the risk. I, I There seems to be sort of a spectrum between users choosing to consume content and then algorithms getting so good at manipulating our brains that the choices aren't always conscious or aren't aren't 100% conscious. And so in terms of like AI and what algorithms are already doing, I do feel like it's, it's less of like a personal choice in terms of what, what people are doing with social media now. And that's something to sort of be wary of going forward as, as this think as all of it moves closer to the end of the spectrum where our brains are being manipulated. Do you have a choice? I feel like I have a, well, actually, it's funny. I have more of a choice if I like remove myself from the internet for a few days. Like I was touching grass over the weekend and felt great the entire time. And so coming back to my phone, I'm less addicted to my phone. But the more I'm on it during the week, the more screen time sort of like spirals out of control depending on the day. So having the ability to like take a step back is really important for me and my mental health. Yeah. I, I, there's obviously really challenging questions here around, you know, personal responsibility, personal agency versus our susceptibility to being manipulated and having this sort of kick in. And I think those are, you know, going to be interesting questions. Like to what extent do we take population level averages, for example, Versus needing to understand and incorporate like what actually makes sense in different contexts. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things to think about in terms of the internet is we hear a lot about the problem of information being free and the, the propagation of content. And we hear that because the folks that are impacted are people like who work in the news or work in entertainment, right? And like, wow, wasn't it great when we had rom-coms that could make 80 million dollars and and we could feel happy about that right mm -hmm. and and the hollowing out of the middle you know like i sorry i'm just you know not to paint you in a caricature <laughs> so obviously say, yeah. i feel that deep in my bones so yes i, but, I uh, take no offense another perspective is 
if we consider broadly speaking, today we have more access to more amazing content by far. Just take YouTube alone, right? The amount of stuff on there and not not just both from entertainment and I'm not going to make it. Oh, think of all the educational content. No, just plain entertainment content. That's mm-hmm. actually really interesting and really compelling. And entertainment has value. I'm not one of those people that I think one of the reasons Facebook was always seriously underestimated is people have an overly utilitarian view in their analysis where things are in- intrinsically worth more if they have utility. And they under, when they're doing evaluation analysis, they underappreciate that entertainment is actually. <laughs> you know, generates yeah. value, right? <laughs> and, well, not just you could say it's unimportant. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It's still like a real thing, and and so it, it depends on your perspective as to whether our current content state is better or worse than before. It's definitely worse if you just look in terms of produced content, or not. Actually, I don't know if it's definitely worse. You can make the case that it's worse. In the in the context of like professionally produced content, quality, like, right? Yeah, we've lost all these niches and and like all these sort of you know highbrow sort of things, and everything's either like super high end or super like trash, and there's nothing in the middle, and that might be valid, but it's not actually a useful analysis to the way the world actually is. Because from the perspective of a creator, I'm not sure what Reed Hastings' point is referring to. Maybe this was it about how Netflix isn't just competing with HBO. They're competing with gaming and they're competing mm-hmm. with YouTube and they're competing with sleep and they're com- competing with Twitter. And, and like when you look, think about the attention economy generally, you can definitely argue that we're not, you know, I mean, like the, the, what's available and what's grabbing our attention is really fantastic. And the other thing that I think is easy to forget is by the numbers, like people were spending hours and hours a day just watching TV, right? And there's a bit where arguably people are taking in more interesting, compelling content than they were back then. And I I think that's part of the problem, honestly, is that there is more compelling content right now. And I guess one of the reasons I'm addicted to my phone, I've got a lot of interesting shit going on on my phone. I'm really good at using the internet to find interesting stories, interesting tweets. I'm in a lively group chat that is somehow arguing like 24 hours a day um, as curated by you. And so there's a lot going on that in the past, I don't think would have been nearly as engrossing. Like if you're in the eighties, it's like, all right, you tape Saturday night live and watch it on Sunday, but you're like going out and seeing people. And why do we know that that was better? I mean, I think this is an argument that I think uh, Mark Andreessen has made most forcefully where he's talked about growing up in like on like a farm in like, you know, the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. And the only sort of source of intellectual vitality was visiting like the crappy mall bookstore that was like 45 minutes away. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, if, if for someone in his position and perspective, if he could have had access to the internet, it would have been transformational in a positive way because reality sucked. And I think there's a view where your and my, and this is something I'm cognizant about when we talk about sort of the touchgrass movement, is I'm pretty lucky. My life's pretty great. And I have been successful with my business and I can do discretionary activities that cost money. And even when I felt very poor, I could still go to Japan and Mm -hmm. visit a shrine and get food poisoning. And I talk about, (laughs) oh, how poor I was. And relative to the vast majority of people ever, I was just absurdly, ridiculously rich and spending my time visiting a foreign country just because I could. Like, it's 
you know, and again, I, I am also wary of this argument because it's used for things like globalization, right? You want to be careful to not get too enamored with any sort of point of view. But I think it is useful to always question your assumptions that the way things are going is obviously bad, right? Mm-hmm. Like we are always comparing the present to this idealized view of the way things were that was not actually the truth for the vast majority of people and for those that were approximately the truth, the reality was actually much more complicated. Yep. I think that's a, a good note to wrap it up on. But I, it, my instinct is that the technology solutions we have now can raise the floor for people in terms of what they, their like personal enjoyment sitting Yeah, their home. quality of life. Yeah, no, right. this is like the um, Ready Player One sort of idea. You know, like, ju- like just being in a virtual reality environment was just a lot better than being in the crappy real environment. I do think the question though, if I can argue the other side is what's causal here, what's actually the cause and effect. Is it that the environment was crappy and thus virtual reality was a wonderful escape or is it because virtual reality was a wonderful escape that we allowed the lived environment to become crappy? Right. And this is actually a fascinating question around AI. Generally, everyone's like, oh, thank goodness. AI is arriving as the world's falling apart. And it's like, well, uh, what were the preconditions for this version of AI to arrive? You had to have the Internet. You had to have the largest volume of sort of human language interaction that was freely accessible and searchable. That was a, a, a key condition to getting this off the ground. Well, also simultaneously. And this is why I question Jack's assertion that I'm a tech optimist. I've made the point that things like social media and particularly Twitter are have major issues, major problems. And I say this as someone that values and people always be like, oh, I find Twitter super valuable. So do I. I can also step back and think like maybe this sort of herding mechanism that aligns everyone around the most insane viewpoint on either side because normal people in the middle don't want to get their heads cut off might not be good for society <laughs> generally, right? And yeah. so the question is, is AI by chance showing up as everything's falling apart or are those actually deeply, intimately interconnected? And of course it's showing up as things are falling apart because the mechanism that was driving things to fall apart was also the mechanism driving AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's going to be interesting to see how we navigate all of it over the next, you know, 30, 40 years. So maybe all of it's going to hit in the next five years. Um, my final thought would be that it raises the floor and potentially lowers the ceiling in terms of human enjoyment and seeking out sort of more durable solutions to long-term happiness. And- but wait, what, what, why does it lower the ceiling? Because you can still touch grass. You can touch grass, but you're less likely to touch grass once you're conditioned to sort of live in a digital metaverse type way. You know what I mean? Like, I think if if that's where you're going to escape your otherwise dreary life, you may be less likely. And frankly, a lot of people experienced that during COVID where they sort of got very comfortable in their little cocoon and then it was a chore to like go out and meet people for dinner and they had to sort of relearn how to do that and i think on a broader scale it's possible that that happens with a lot of people who just get addicted to living life through social media yeah no i i think that that, that that's that's definitely plausible um so I don't know. We'll see. All I mean, the of good it's thing plausible. Is, That's what's crazy. Is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the good thing is, is that you know, uh, you know, if a little 
solipsism here. You know, there was a, a stage seven or eight or two or three years ago where I was ready to quit trajectory in part because it just seemed like everything I wrote about as far as the internet favoring the centralization of big companies uh, turned out to be true. And I wrote, when I first wrote aggregation theory, I wrote an article saying, you know, this is inevitably going to lead to everything getting bogged down in antitrust debates and questions. And mm-hmm. it's going to be super annoying because the, the, <laughs> I remember the this, ways, the ways in which these, these are about antitrust uh, do not align to our current thing. And all that ended up being true. And I found myself on a daily basis writing about like congressional hearings and antitrust stuff. And I'm like, this <laughs> you were sucks. like, I'm not an antitrust lawyer. I remember texting with you about this at some point. You were like, I did not sign up to just cover this constantly. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, one of the reasons I, and it's interesting because like the concept of burnout, right? I work an insane amount, right? But I mm-hmm. do it because it's like, I love what I'm doing. And, and you know, if I were not writing trajectory, I would be spending all weekend as I did reading about and thinking about how the human brain works and how these models work and all sorts of things. There's literally nothing that I would have changed about my weekend as far as that was concerned. And I recognize that makes me incredibly fortunate and blessed and all those sorts of things. It also leads to me working just like, you know, it's an amount, right? Um, I think burnout comes, and this is not a new sort of observation. Burnout comes when uh, you're doing working really hard and you you don't feel that sort of internal sense of motivation you feel a sense of compulsion you're doing stuff because you feel like you have to mm-hmm. and that that's the closest i've ever come to burnout was sort of that that period and i bring this up because um i'm usually not one to mark anniversaries but uh saturday was actually the 10-year anniversary of me starting Woo! and well, a lot of you. celebrations on the podcast here got a new baby got yeah, 10 years of stratechery stratechery all grown up now yeah, <laughs> about to enter adolescence. But it, I mean, there is a bit where, you know, the reason I just sort of bring this up in the context of this is in 10 years, I came into writing trajectory feeling like I had a, a pretty good handle of the way tech worked. Mm-hmm. And that was an opening for me to write about because I felt oh, the broad conception of tech was mostly wrong. And I was going to come in and set the record straight, as it were. And uh, that ended up turning out pretty well. And then it got very boring to a certain extent. <laughs> what What is striking is I feel like coming in at 10 years and it, it, like I, it, the level of uncertainty and change around this, I think, is difficult to overstate. Like I just made a lot of assertions on this about what I think the relative things about risk are and the way things are going to work and play out and how people are going to respond to this. And there's literally no one that knows or can know and not just because this is some sort of humble statement about oh all new technology who's who knows what's going to happen with mobile right actually Mm -hmm. i think we knew pretty well what was going to happen with mobile And, and and there's nothing particularly surprising that happened to the extent it was surprised is that apple maintained its advantage to the extent it did but again, that was one of the areas where I felt I could come into tech and make a difference because it was very clear to me why Apple would sort of maintain their advantage in a different way than they did with sort of Mac. So I think that was knowable. I, I, I think I strongly suspect that the level of unknowableness about what's happening is pretty much unmatched, right? I think yeah. you, 
it's staggering as a newcomer. <laughs> there's like a lot of uncertainty in the way people talk about what this is going to evolve into, whether you're talking products or its impact on society and the economy. Right. Cause I mean, what else. I'll talk right about most is like, what's the impact on like business structure, right? Where's the actual value going to be garnished? I wrote AI in the big five. That was sort of, it, it, you know, I can, I think I said it explicitly, this is a short to medium term view because the long term, it's not really clear the extent this is going to this is going to play out. And I, I can't remember if it was that article or another one where I talked about this sort of music generation bit and generating music from images. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that actually that was getting along the right track, which is my current thinking is this technique and this idea, language is a means. It's not the actual end. And it's going to be more generalizable than we think in a way that human cognition is more generalizable than we think. Like we know the parts of our brains that deal with vision are not tuned to vision and actually get repurposed for people that are blind to doing other stuff, right? Like the, the, the overall, the, the brain is a much more generalizable sort of organ than we, we used to think. And that's both exciting and also dramatically increases the uncertainty. Leave aside where business value is going to be garnished, right? I mean, I actually think there's, a possibility, you know, as, as this works down to local devices, this may be the, the end of aggregation, what I sort of talked about previously, where, where you, everything is individualized and personalized. Mm-hmm. And um, and the, we may look back on this Internet era of people going online and interacting back and forth as this weird period in time that was actually just a 30-year period (laughs) where we did this weird stuff online and it no longer made sense before or sort of after like wow that was kind of wild and maybe this ends up being actually very optimistic where we actually touch grass more precisely because the the i mean i don't know no but i think that's a distinct possibility that the the way this trends ultimately leads to people disengaging and and living their lives a little bit differently and understanding their relationship to technology a little bit differently because it's going to be so extreme and so engrossing if you're not sort of vigilant about it. Yeah, and there's sort of two points. I, I know we we took a one question and we basically built the whole <laughs> yeah. podcast around this. Well, so, it was um, a really a good email. Good so thank you, Jack. Uh, I think that you know one of the things I think a lot about is biases, right? And there's things like confirmation bias, right? You 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 tend to look for data that supports your pre-existing thesis, and so you have to be very disciplined about sort of thinking about where you could be wrong and looking for evidence in that regard and things on those lines. And, and there's also things you don't know that you don't know. Right. And, and then mm-hmm. you're not even looking for evidence there because you didn't know you didn't know it. And, and that's it, there's but there's all kinds of different biases they have to be aware of. But I think there's two biases when it comes to uh, your own personal experience that can, that kind of work against each other. So one is where you look at everyone else and you're like, I'm different than them. You know, and like they're they're sort of persuaded by misinformation. I right. know the truth, right? And you, you guys, are like, are you sure about that? <laughs> right? You, I am. I'm the not- actually. I'm the only person in the world that's not shaped by any of these algorithms. Just for the record, that's right. Yeah, no one's manipulating Andrew Sharp. Um, <laughs> you know, thinker. although the, yeah, your uh, insistence on instinctually disagreeing with what everyone argues actually probably does serve you quite quite well in that regard. <laughs> yeah, uh, to be right. clear, um, so. There's that. But the other one is to say that uh, to be under optimistic and say no one can be like me in sort of a, a, a negative sense. And the reason I bring this up is I feel very 
you know, there, there's a there's sort of a, a general thing in surveys where you ask people what's the direction of like America, and they're like, it's terrible. It's like, how's mm-hmm. your life personally? It's like it's going great. <laughs> and it's like there's this there's this weird sort of disconnect that I think should be a bit of a eye opening about you know your information diet and maybe believing everything that comes from a media that's probably incentivized in certain directions to keep you engaged and angry uh, that might not be correct. And I think about this myself where, again, with all the caveats that I've been very fortunate in life and, you know, I my material welfare is taken care of, but there is a bit where you, know, you get to things like group chats you mentioned before. Like you have this sort of I social network more than ever, but I'm not on Twitter in like this where I think Twitter is, you know, I post a thing about you know, on Twitter over the weekend about the 10 year anniversary. And of course, lots of nice tweets and it's all oh, great. Thank you. And you'll try to click like on all of them. And wow. then there's like three like snarky comments and, and you, those, they burn and you, <laughs> and you remember it and you think about it. Like we just as humans are just really not well suited to this public social networking sort of model. It's, it's, very bad. It's it's it just it's not good. Again, I think social network, but this idea where I can be in Taiwan or and this doesn't just apply to being international. You get busy. You have kids. You're stuck in your life, and everyone feels this. Man, I don't hang out with my friends like I used to. And suddenly, you're in an environment thanks to technology where you can basically be hanging out with your friends twenty four seven to the point where I almost feel a little overwhelmed here, right? But mm-hmm. a meaningful shift in quality of life, at least from my perspective, and that's an example where we went through this rough period of public social networking, maybe not so great, maybe kind of disruptive to the human psyche, particularly because the people who aren't, who aren't susceptible are like trolls and are just out there, you know, attacking you. And like, there's like people, I think normal people are just very, very hard to handle. I've been online as a public figure for a long time and I still have trouble sort of dealing with it emotionally. But when I'm in a group chat, and people are taking the crap out of me because of something stupid I said, or I'm being overly pro bucks or whatever. It's no problem because I'm in a trusted environment with people that I know care about my overall welfare. And that feels sort of very healthy. And then, of course, you should get together at some point. Anyhow, I'm rambling on and on. But the point is, just as we can be overly optimistic, we can be overly pessimistic, too, by looking at the way things were. And it gets back to this, maybe the public internet was sort of a bootloader for AI. And mm-hmm. we're going to evolve ourselves as sort of society to the way we were doing the internet might not have been so great. And we will reset in a new place where we're much more online than we were previously. We're much more connected and plugged in. But it's actually better than the, he mentioned Bowling Alone. Bowling Alone was written pre-internet. This idea of atomization and people feeling isolated is a problem that is not an internet problem. That's been a societal problem with the industrial society going back for a very, very long time. And mm-hmm. again, I'm not saying this is the case. This is, but I do think there is an underappreciated, optimistic take about all of this stuff where by virtue of offloading the digital to the machines, it actually frees us up to re-engage with the things that actually matter and make lives better. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I do think it's a mistake to overly anchor on this is definitely going to be bad 
Well, would, I am saying that's going to happen. Good. I'm betting on humans in the long term. Humans have proven to be pretty adaptable over the years and uh, over thousands of years. And uh, as I said earlier, I think if it's a real problem, humans will figure out a healthier relationship to all this. I'm really sorry I missed your 10 year anniversary post. I didn't see that you had announced that publicly. I was too busy touching grass living the principles of the podcast um but you know your, think, ten, your, your 10 day away baby i think is more important than my <laughs> yeah, that's anniversary, true. there's so. a little drama on the baby front um no i think in general a good theme here is don't think in absolutes as we grapple with all of this because even the the state of society and again like coming from a pretty privileged place but at the same time I when I'm out interacting with the world, I don't experience the world as a place that's in decline where everyone's miserable and isolated. And you can spend your time online reading news and reading stories that are sort of engineered to make you upset and worried. And the world can look like a shittier place than it actually is. And um to the extent we're looking at where we are now as all bad, I think the way news works these days is probably part of that. And it's probably, well, it's definitely not accurate to say that everything is bad now as a result of the last 20 years in in technology. And I think going forward, um, it's important to keep that in mind. And there are always going to be trade-offs. That's another theme yeah, of the well, podcast. Here. I, I think this, the social, the social networking thing is, is a great example. Like uh, people are surprised that I view Twitter as problematic again. Cause they're they, like, I get so much value of it again. I get so much value out of it too, but I think that, you know, there's real concerns about its societal impact. But if you step back and consider social networking broadly, which why would you not include Instant messaging, for example, that's mm-hmm. a social network. The the value of WhatsApp depends on how many people have it. For example, X Y Z. Uh, I think the value is at, is extremely positive, and and you know the it just all depends on your perspective. Yes, and there are trade offs, and uh, you know, and the the reason to go back to the anniversary is is it's just it's really striking to be ten years in and to feel like this is the most uncertain and exciting. Yeah, scary time that that we've been through yet. And it's it's yeah, it, it, it's a big deal. That was the other point that I wanted to make at the end is we just have no idea. And that is both terrifying and exciting at the same time. So right, it's, it's not we have no idea in a, uh, you know, I'm being fake, humble sort of way. <laughs> like, I think you like there's the people that understand this at a very deep level also don't. And be wary of anyone that is certain about about where this is going to go. And Ben, we will close it there and come You had back. a great rundown. There's actually a bunch of things I wanted to talk about here. But I I, I, sorry, we made it through one question today. Well, a lot of twists and turns, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, we'll come back later in the week, hit some of what we missed. Again, if you have any sort of vacation type questions, keep them light. Send them to email at sharptech.fm. And we are going to be pre-recording next week's episode. And then who the hell knows what's going to happen with the rest of April, but we are coming back later There's this week. There's just uncertainty week. everywhere. That's the, that's the big <laughs> takeaway. Uncertainty all around us. And 10 years of Stratechery. Congratulations. And Ben, until Thursday, I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you later. Thank you.